Welcome back. It's Saturday, 4th of May, 1946. Before we hear from Betty today, we'll return for a brief extract from the official history of UNRWA. The story of UNRWA, Chapter 3, What and How. It's difficult to understand what UNRWA did and how without a clear picture of its organisational mechanism. When its aims were blueprinted, 44 United Nations subscribed to them. That number swelled to 48 before its work was finished. UNRWA was, then, the operating agency of 48 member governments. Each of these governments participated in its policy-making council. During the life of UNRWA, this council met only six times, twice in Atlantic City, New Jersey, once in Washington, D.C., once in Montreal, Canada, once in London, and once in Geneva. Representatives of nine governments composed a central committee which made emergency decisions between council sessions. They were a cross-section of the 48 member governments. Five of them, a majority, were the principal supplying countries, the United States, the United Kingdom, Canada, Australia, and Brazil. Two were invaded countries, the Soviet Union, which did not ask for assistance, though the two most devastated Soviet republics did, and France. The remaining two were invaded lands which did receive relief, China and Yugoslavia. The Central Committee met at the Washington headquarters of UNRWA upon call of the chairman. The executive responsibility was centred in a director-general who was assisted by his staff. All three of the directors-general were United States citizens, former Governor Herbert H. Lehman of New York, the late F. H. LaGuardia of New York, and Major General Lowell W. Rooks. But now, let's hear from Bet. Mrs. Betty Souter, UNRWA, Embankment Building, 370 North Suchow Road, Shanghai, China, 4th of May, 1946. My dear folks at home, another circular type letter, but each copy is really a very personal note to each one of you. Although I am very busy now, right on the job, I still find there are plenty of moments to think of you all and to feel just a tiny bit homesick. I'm longing for some mail, to hear just a little of what is going on back home. I write this letter from Nanchang, in the province of Changxi, about 600 miles from Shanghai. We came up the Yangtze River, for so long just another name in the geography books, for about 500 miles and then travelled from Ku Chang by jeep over the roughest and muddiest and most slippery roads I have ever seen. The destination, however, was well worth the trip, even worth enduring the bugs at the Chinese hotel at Ku Chang, and that is saying something. Our billet is most comfortable and clean and comparatively private, and the hospitality of the Chinese people in this district is quite overwhelming. I've actually only been here for one week, and already have been with the whole of the 12 UNRWA staff here to three Chinese dinners and one Chinese dance. Apart from the UNRWA personnel and two missionaries, there are no other Europeans in Nanchang. 
and they fed us properly in consequence. A proper Chinese dinner is a rather wonderful and exhausting affair. The guests sit at round tables, about eight to each, and the dishes are brought in one at a time and placed in the centre of the table, whereupon each guest dives in with his chopsticks to the community bowl and helps himself to a morsel. As there are always 12 to 20 dishes, one is wise to take only a morsel each time. The guest is only provided with chopsticks, a bowl, a tiny saucer and a small spoon. With the soups, and there are usually at least four of them at intervals throughout the meal, one uses one's little spoon to ladle out some soup into the bowl and then proceeds to drink the soup as noisily as possible straight from the bowl. If the host thinks that one guest might like a particular titbit, he uses his own chopsticks to transfer the said morsel either from his own plate or from the community bowl. One cannot refuse to eat from any of the 20 dishes and cannot refuse the host's attentions. We try to keep all the customs and always remain courteous and therefore have to toss standards of hygiene to the winds or to the spittoons, plenty of which are always provided in every room in every house. Some of the Chinese dishes are very tasty indeed, but it is often better not to inquire about the component parts. The Chinese are wonderful cooks, but I believe they do not waste a thing. Ducks' livers, slimy green baby eels, shark fins and turtles are some of the main delicacies. Most of the vegetables seem to be to the Western taste, only half cooked, but one grows accustomed to chewing hard on cabbage, beans and peas. Bamboo shoots, to me, are a new and delicious dish. I'm very keen about them. I just could not face the octopus that was served up on the river boat. It was so obviously octopus. Fortunately, it was not an occasion when I had to be courteous and accept. One main feature of Chinese dinners is the issuing of the invitations only on the very day of the party. The messenger waiting for an immediate reply, which must be in the affirmative, unless the invitee is away from the home or ill. Another engagement is not an acceptable excuse, and the difficulty is surmounted by the invitee eating several courses only at each of the host's homes. One might therefore have to attend four or five dinners on the same night, but as long as an appearance is made, the courtesy is accepted. Another important feature is the drinking of the wine. Tiny cups are kept filled by vigilant servants, two at a table, who pour the wine from quaint teapots. Mostly, it is a white wine, fairly sweet to taste and, fortunately, not too potent. As each new dish is put on the table, the host of the table proposes the toast to the new dish. This would mean quite a solid amount of drinking on its own when there are 20 dishes, but everyone at the table must drink to everyone else individually, and then, just as often as you feel inclined, no one may even sip the wine without being accompanied by another person. A woman always has the right to sui bien, sip, except when the host drinks to her with a gambe toast, bottoms up, and then she has to quaff the lot in one go. A man must always respond to a gambe toast with a gambe, which may occur every time during the evening. 
it is a compliment to a guest to get him intoxicated. Women are never invited to the Chinese dinners. We Europeans are regarded as a novelty in that respect, and, in deference to our ideas, the husbands sometimes permit their wives to accompany them to the parties that we give in our own house. We always invite the wives, and at first they did not know quite what to do about it. To come back to the dinner drinks, I should have mentioned that when the rice dish appears on the table, the last drink is taken, everyone finishing their cups, and after the taste of the rice, there is no more drinking at all. Straight after dinner, the guests leave. No more chat or delay. The party is over, the dinner complete, the guests merry and full, and so there is no need for more. Of course, it has taken at least two or three hours to reach this point. But now I must tell you something about UNRWA. At work in the Chinese provinces, I've only been working for a week, but in this job I have to learn a lot and learn it quickly. UNRWA brings to main centres such as Shanghai stocks of food, clothing, medicines, building materials, etc., and from the main centre, the goods are distributed to regional centres throughout China. The goods are actually sold at prevailing prices to the people, and all proceeds are turned over to Shinra, the Chinese relief organisation, which actually conducts the distribution to the people, the rebuilding of homes, housing and transportation for the streams of refugees returning to their villages, etc. Shinra sends out field teams right into the country, UNRWA supervises from the centres the spending of all the Chunra monies, authorising or rejecting the requests for subsidies. And believe me, the Chinese, like any other people, will put it over you if they can. UNRWA controls the allocation of goods or materials, keeps China office, Shanghai, informed of the requirements of every province and whether they are urgent or can wait until more urgent requirements are met. Chunra and UNRWA work together particularly well out here in the country. Chunra always been willing to accept the UNRWA decision. The people really seem grateful for what is being done. There is, of course, a certain amount of giving rather than lending and supplying necessities without payment. Extensive inquiries are made as to the really needy persons and some type of register is kept. When a village is admitted to have been devastated, there is never very much to be seen. The Japs made a perfect job of levelling whole villages at a time, and as the refugees return to the place where their homes once stood, Chunra is nearby to help them with food or clothes until they rebuild. The Chinese are a wonderfully patient and long-suffering people, and they accept their misfortune and their fate without complaint. They simply set their paltry belongings on the sidewalk and start again to put up the walls. No tragic survey of the scene, no raising of the arms, tears or tearing of the hair. They would appear to think nothing of it. I particularly admire the farmers and the country peasants. In this city, our director is immediately engaged on inspecting the ruined blast furnace, the cement works, the power plant and the sewerage systems or lack of them. After inspection, he will recommend that Chunra either does or does not allocate specified sums of money to the rebuilding of the old constructions or establishment of new ones. Yes, the regional staff has a lot on its hands. I work in close conjunction with the director to give him an overall view of things which come to my knowledge. Fortunately, our director is conscientious, enthusiastic and untiring. That is the enviable reputation of all Australians on UNRWA staff. 
and he is therefore most conversant with all that is going on in this district. He believes in seeing his district for himself, calling a spade a spade, and inviting the Chinese to join in our social life as often as possible. True to traditions of the RAF, he is a good drinker, and the Chinese respect him extra much accordingly. It is a grand team that we have in this office. Apart from the mail, which is terribly important, I am longing for my luggage to arrive from Sydney. The hot weather has started here, sticky and humid, and in any event, everything in the house always seems to be damp, and I'm still living in my 65 pounds of air luggage, which included two blankets, a sleeping bag, and similar items which are put out of sight up here. Golly. I'm sick of the sight of these clothes. We are urging for a sewing machine, whereupon I'll buy some of the lovely cotton cloth around here and try to make something. The only ready-made clothes are second-hand peasant garments. I've got the buying craze, and I do not know how I will ever get things home if I keep going at this rate. I was delightfully extravagant yesterday and spent 100,000 Chinese dollars on a gorgeous mandarin coat, there will never again be mandarin coats in China, and this one is a beauty. Red, with tons and tons of gold thread embroidery, real gold thread. It is gorgeous, and all the thrill of it for about £15.10. The antique dealers soon seek us out, as everyone else is too poor to buy such things, and the formerly wealthy families are only too ready to sell their heirlooms. My coat is is hundreds of years old, but looks almost new. It was probably only worn on very special occasions. Our Chinese housekeeper, a charming little person, looks closely at all our purchase to see that there's no fraud, and she bargains until the dealers come down to half their price or less. The original price quoted for my coat was 400,000 Chinese, and it only took four visits to beat him down. I've also bought some smaller pieces of gold thread embroidery, a Chinese painting, original, to go with my prize collection at home, and half a dozen locally made silver coffee spoons. There is a whole street of silversmiths in this town, and I anticipate many visits there before I leave. You can see the smiths at work, and all their products are on display. You have to bargain with them too, and everybody enjoys themselves. The silver is mostly obtained from the previous silver coinage, none of which is now acceptable currency, and the remaining treasures that the Chinese plundered from the wealthy homes after the Japs were driven out. Some say that the Chinese themselves caused more destruction to the bigger homes than the Japanese did. So much for the present. Would that I had a pen of the journalist or the brush of the artist. A law-trained woman is not the best suited, I fear, to giving true pictures of these ever-fascinating sights and experiences. But I hope my letters convey to you a little of the thrill and the fun that I would like you all to hear and enjoy. Cheerio. Postscript to letter, 4 May 1946. Dear Mother, Dad and Family, These new letters may overlap a bit because I'm sending carbons to different people all the time, but you will get the originals of each one. I'm still loving this place and happy to be working. What do you suggest about sending home the odds and ends that I'm collecting for you? Will I chance the post? Heaps of love to you all. Bet. Production credits for this episode. Produced and narrated by Warren Henry. Voice of 
Betty Souter by Helen Polkinghorne, and the featured tune from 1946, Let the Good Times Roll, Louis Jordan and his Timpani Five. Get yourself under control. Go out and get together and let the good times roll. 